Hey everyone, my name is Nick. And my name's Kat. Thanks for listening to our podcast, Made for You and Me, an educational and entertaining podcast about the history, geology, wildlife, and other fun facts within America's best idea, the National Parks. Today is Wednesday, November 11th, 2020, aka Veterans Day. And 11-11. Make a wish. Make a wish for the veterans. Make a wish for the veterans. Uh, shout out to all the veterans and their families who have sacrificed so much to preserve this wonderful state. And, and by state, I mean the United States and our democracy. Um, shout out. We appreciate you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. Uh, Kat, how has your week and day been? Um, it's been both really hectic and crazy and also plenty of reason for celebration. So I have both done a butt ton of work and completely ignored work altogether for 48 hours. So I think that's a good balance, right? I think that's a great balance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will affirm you in that. I'm not going to be, I'm never going to be one to say that you need to ever prioritize work <laughs> so maybe if you want like a true honest answer don't always come to me about that but I will affirm you in that and say heck yes yeah I really I got into a report like I'm really stoked on this report okay. which is kind of weird but I was working on it until 11.30 last night. But we've been watching the Great British Baking Show. Mm-hmm. And I realized we had gotten through, like, most of a season while I was working <laughs> on this. And I was like, it's probably time to go to sleep. So Just that's kind through. of winner, winner, chicken dinner between being able to watch the Great British Baking Show and work on something you're excited about. I on. agree. Yeah. So. What about you, Nicholas? Um, Good, good day. I'll be honest with you, Kat. I love you dearly. And I really like doing this podcast with you I wasn't extremely stoked to come over tonight it was just like a very it poured the rain all day which is not conducive to productivity and then I had just picked up the pup from daycare like maybe an hour ago and we were chilling at home and he was just being the sweetest most well-behaved tired sleepy boy from his big day and we were hanging and then I had to leave come here and I just really didn't want to leave him well, I'll let you go back. No, it's it's fine. Super I, offended. Oh my gosh! I'll just curl up beside <laughs> you and and snore or something like that. Dogs do that, right? Oh, Cooper does that for sure. No. I can like kick my leg a little bit, like I'm dreaming. <laughs> he does all that. Mm-hmm. Now I'm very happy to be here. Um, you better be. I am. I am. I was just he when I was leaving. He was like, "What the heck, Dad? We just started hanging out. Now you're leaving." But it's all good. I also feel like I have not mentioned Cooper enough in these episodes. Oh, that is so right. He's like literally my favorite thing to exist ever. And I've only brought him up like very few times. We had pretty much an entire episode dedicated to Pepper. I know. I know. But (laughs) she was like, she was a visitor. She's not in our lives full time regularly. So I guess that made it like more exciting than normal. But yeah, Cooper is my dog. He is a two-year-old black lab. I got him whenever he was eight weeks old from a shelter a few towns over. And he has just been my very best friend ever since. And I love him more than life itself. And he's the greatest thing. So it wasn't easy to leave him tonight. Um, But 
I am I am jazzed to be here. He just gave me that look whenever I was out the door, no. and I was like, bro, breaking my heart. That's Yeah, he's been a little bit, um, like, you haven't been as happy with him the past few times I've seen you with him. So for you to be like, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, that must he's have just been difficult. Been, he's just been a rowdy boy, and um, me working from home full time, and just him being the energetic breed that he is, I have been making a lot of grown sounds recently but overall he's the greatest thing to exist so well cooper and i have another thing in common because i'm also an energetic breed (laughs) (laughs) oh but you know how to hone in that energy and how to really turn it into into a report into a report (laughs) into a whole season of the great british baking show he doesn't know anything except ball but that's totally great we can we just can go to the park and play ball all day every day which for me is like i'm over it but for him it makes him the happiest boy in the world and so therefore it makes me a very happy dad i'm just jealous that you have a dog i have so many animals but not the one thing that i really 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 really, really want which is a dog well it's a huge huge responsibility that i also did not really realize and understand before getting cooper um so i think it's very smart to you know, make sure that you really, really want a dog for a significant amount of time to make sure that it's the best decision for yourself. Um, But I was listening to the radio this morning and they were advertising local senior dogs that needed homes. And I started tearing up in the car because they were just like describing these very docile, sweet, eight to 10 year old creatures who should, I mean, no dog, really belongs in a shelter but especially a senior dog so i'm texting my fiance right now from the other room cat like i think that is is the way to go just with like the the way that you guys live your lives and your lifestyle i think bringing a senior dog into your home that doesn't really need too much other than some consistent love would be the most purest and beautiful I, great thing to happen I to you this year i seriously don't know why you're being so offensive off the bat <laughs> <laughs> like i can't wait to tear you apart <laughs> just kidding oh no but i just uh, i truly love dogs and i truly love cooper and that's that's all i have to say about that excellent well why don't we talk about this national park i'm down where are we going today so I think that 2020 has been a very up and down, unpredictable year. So Kat and I, and I guess all the listeners didn't know this, but Kat and I have done a very random selection of each park episode that we've done. But this week we were hanging out and I was like, Kat, I need to be in control of something. So let's decide on an episode and not leave it up to fate and the random number generator that we use in Google every week. Let's pick our actual park. And we landed on Acadia. I didn't tell you this when you... I said I completely agree and I was thinking about that, but I didn't tell you that. I was having a conversation last week and it wasn't the least awkward conversation that I've ever had with a group of people that I don't really know. <laughs> so I finally went around and I was like, what's everyone's favorite national park? And it worked. Love and it. everyone immediately had something. And so oh, uh, one person said Acadia and that just stuck out in my head. And I immediately was like, I really can't wait to do Acadia. So that's how that worked out. And I know I mentioned in the last short that I was going to use that as like my um, uh, social lubricant when, right, right, yeah. when things start to go awry. Um, so it worked, just I'm, so everyone knows. I'm glad it worked in real life. We have proof. 
um, that bringing up national parks to any group of people can only lead to good talks. It manifested this specific podcast. It really today. did. I'm super happy with um, with being able to do an episode on Acadia National Park. Personally, I've never gone, but I have wanted to for quite a while now. I think I'm more drawn. We live on the East Coast, and I think I'm more drawn to parks that are more accessible geographically. So Maine's not too, too far away. And it's I not been, too, too close either. It's not too, too close, but definitely closer than out west. But I have, uh, I've been wanting to go to Acadia for a while now, and this just made me want to go even more. Well, I had never given it the time of day, and now I think it's wonderful. It's like, it's, it's low-key, not so low-key that people don't know about it because as we will talk about it's one of the most visited parks but it's low-key as in like it's not the super show-offy or you know like you don't really think about it like you would with the Tetons and the Grand Canyon but it is a really spectacular place I don't want to get too into it so I'm just going to agree with you (laughs) but I have I have points and I'm sure they'll come up cool well let's jump in So Acadia National Park is in the state of Maine, just southwest of Bar Harbor. It's located in slash on Mount Desert Island and preserves about half of the island and many adjacent smaller islands. It is 49,075 acres, making it the 14th smallest out of the 62 parks. It has 3.9 million annual visitors, putting it in the top 10 most visited United States National Parks every year. It was first, it has two birthdays. It was first established in 1919 under the name Lafayette National Park and then renamed Acadia National Park in 1929. The park includes mountains, an ocean coastline, woodlands, lakes, ponds, and wetlands. Ooh. Ooh. So let's get into the history. And like most other episodes, we're going to have two parts of the history, a pre-United States history Mm -hmm. and then modern day united states history so like most native american history in the united states the story of um, the tribes that occupied the land of current day acadia national park and beyond is a pretty sad one so like we stated in our first episode we will do our very best not to quote unquote whitewash the history of these places um and also just a little addition Uh, We've gotten some good feedback from our listeners on the episodes overall and the podcast that we've done, but a few people have shared that they did not listen to the first two episodes because they're not big history buffs, and you need to. They're actually super interesting episodes, and if we mention something in future episodes that you don't get, it was probably discussed in episodes one and two on the history of the National Park Service, and if you don't get it, then that's on you. Yeah. <laughs> Laying down the law. You should listen to us. You should. You should. Why wouldn't you? Like, that's it's that's a really solid foundation for everything we're going to talk about. So I agree. And history back, is not my thing. So you should it. listen. I digress. Anyway, Native Americans have inhabited the area called Acadia for at least 12,000 years. The Wabanaki Confederacy are a group of five related Algonquin tribes called the, and I'll do my very best to pronounce all these correctly, called the Maliseet, Micmac, Passamaquoddy, Abenaki, and Penobscot tribes. 
I would be really pissed if I were a indigenous person and I found out like in the afterlife that I could have just walked down this mountain trail and got into an area that wasn't freezing for most of the year. <laughs> like if they had gone like to North Carolina or something like that. You oh, know? Like, oh. Can you imagine how harsh it would be to I live in I thought you were Maine? talking about like in the park itself and I was like, is there that big of a temperature difference? <laughs> like from like the top of the mountain this like 1500 foot? Okay, but you're talking about the country overall yeah no i completely agree (laughs) especially like not to even mention all the amenities that we have today like indoor heating and plumbing and like sleeping bags sleeping bags like all that stuff but yeah that's good point i would if i were a native american and i were dead i would not i would not want anyone to tell me that there was a warmer climate like 300 miles south. I would not even want to know. <laughs> like six months of walking. You could have been there. You could have been there. So obviously there were Native Americans all over present day North America. And the people who were up north did real good with it. Mm-hmm. Beyond me. But um, so that was the uh, those were the five groups that lived in that greater Maine area. So the Wabanaki traveled to Mount Desert Island in birch bark canoes to hunt, fish, gather berries, harvest clams, and basket-making resources like sweetgrass and to trade with other tribes. In the early 17th century, there was a favored rendezvous site for the Wabanaki tribes called Castine, which is a small town in Maine today. And by 1615, Castine developed into a major fur trading post where French, English, and Dutch traders all fought for control. Uh, Sealskins, moose hides, and furs were traded by the Wabanakis for European commodities. And by the early 1620s, warfare and introduced diseases, including smallpox, cholera, and influenza had decimated the tribes from Mount Desert Island southward all the way to Cape Cod, leaving only about 10% of the original population. Hmm. Yeah, really sad. Um, They were just all these, I mean, warfare is one thing, but just all these diseases that they were not used to, that their bodies weren't used to it and they couldn't handle it. No immunities. No immunities. So that is really sad. But I'm going to talk about how some of that culture is still alive and well today. Uh, The border established between the United States and Canada after the American Revolution split the Wabanaki homelands. The Confederacy was dissolved around 1870 due to pressure from American and Canadian governments, unfortunately. But the tribal nations continued to interact in their traditional ways. Throughout the 19th century, Wabanaki sold handmade ash and birch bark baskets to travelers. They performed dances for summer tourists and residents during events in the town of Bar Harbor, and Wabanaki guides led canoe trips around Frenchman Bay and Cranberry Islands. Then, American Indian claims in Maine were legally settled in the years 1980 and 1991, and the annual Bar Harbor Native American Festival began in 1989, jointly sponsored by the tribes and the Abbey Museum. The Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance assists in the coordination with these annual festivals and the museum, and I'll touch on those too because it's really, really cool, and I think that we should recognize um, that despite being nearly obliterated by European diseases, these tribes and the culture are still thriving today. Awesome. So today, each tribe has a reservation and government headquarters located within their territories throughout Maine. 
So then back to some of these festivals and the Abbey Museum, there are three, and I'm going to mention them real quick. So the Abbey Museum is dedicated to exploring the history and culture of Maine's native people, the Wabanaki. It has one location in downtown Bar Harbor and a second location in Acadia National Park. So if and when you go to Acadia National Park, visit the museum and learn something. It's pretty cool. Then there's also the Thoreau Wabanaki Trail Festival that takes place annually. And this festival promotes the understanding, appreciation, and stewardship of Maine's unique cultural heritage and natural resources made famous in the Moosehead Lake region. It celebrates naturalist writer Henry David Thoreau, who we mentioned in the first episode, and his three trips into the Maine woods, guided by Native Americans. And then the third festival is the Native American Festival and Basket Makers Market, which is a collaborative partnership between Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance and the Abbey Museum. The festival features handcrafted Wabanaki artwork that represents the beauty and culture of the Maliseet, Mi'kmaq, Passamaquoddy, and Penobscot people in Maine. Excellent job. Oh, thank you. Pronouncing those is difficult but i think it's important to try your best yes you did wonderfully oh thank you um so that's all i have on the native american history and shout out to all the people who really did their best to not let that culture die that's really fantastic um and just these partners between the abbey museum and um all these other uh alliances and associations uh is is pretty cool I'm super proud of that. Oh, and also the Native American Festival and Basket Makers Market is still being held in 2020, even with COVID. It's just a virtual festival. Excellent. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of basket makers things we talk about. Yeah. We should probably do a short on why basket makers are so important. That'd be really cool. Uh, So now we have a little bit of history on the colonization. Do you want to talk about that now or take a break first? Let's take a short break. Okay, I'm down. We'll be back. Hey everyone, welcome back. My name's Nick. And my name's Kat. <laughs> uh, so we left off talking about the Native American history in present day Acadia National Park. And now we're going to dive back into the history and talk about colonization and present day America. Excellent. Sound good? So... In 1613, French Jesuits, welcomed by native people, established the first French mission in America on Mount Desert Island. They had just begun to build a fort, plant corn, and baptize the natives when an English ship destroyed their mission. Oh, nay. <laughs> so the English came in and they said, oh, uh-uh, we want this land. And the ship straight up, like in in like one of the first scenes of Pirates of the Caribbean, like straight up <laughs> destroyed the mission and the fort. Okay. Excellent. Which not cool. I mean I that's how it went down back then, but seems aggressive. Um, then the English victory, of course, doomed Jesuit ambitions on Mount Desert Island, leaving the land in a state of limbo between the French which was firmly entrenched in the North and in Canada, and then the British, whose settlements were in Massachusetts and southward. And those settlements were obviously becoming increasingly numerous. Mm -hmm. But then no one wished to settle this contested territory, which to me, I'm like, 
then why the heck did you bomb it? Because they were like, bored. Why did you Nicholas? go in with your they cannons? And that's like so weird to me. So they like, they just wanted to flex their cannons. The French like came in. I mean, it's pretty great that they were welcomed. I mean, so as history is told, um, they were welcomed by the native people, and then they you know established their mission and they were doing their thing. And then the English came in and they were like, "No, we don't want this land, but we hate that you're here." That sounds pretty right. <laughs> you are not wrong. So then anyway, for the next 150 years, the island's importance was primarily is primarily its use was as a, a landmark for seamen. Um, but it wasn't. <laughs> I knew. I knew. You looked me dead in the I eye. <laughs> we Why did you look at me? <laughs> I'm just making eye contact with you. Uh, <laughs> I was I was like, I'm not gonna giggle at that. Like neither will cat. Like but no, of course, of course we couldn't make it past that. Sailors? Sailors. So no one really owned this land. Like the French were like, I guess we're not allowed to have it anymore. And the English were like, well, we don't want it. So anyway, it was just It's uh, a big he said, she said. It was just exactly. <laughs> um, so it was important place for sailors. Um, and other uh, people of the water <laughs> to um, use as a home base. Merman. Maybe them too. Um, so there was a brief period when it seemed that Mount Desert would again be become the center of French activity, but that didn't last long. In 1688, Antoine Laurent, an ambitious young man who had immigrated to New France, which was what it was called at the time, and bestowed upon himself the title Sieur de la Monte Cadillac. Or just de la Monte? De la Monte? I don't know. I don't speak French. But he gave himself that fancy-ass title and then asked for and received 100,000 acres of land along the main coast, including all of Mount Desert Island. Yeah. So. Yeah. That sounds about right, too. I mean, you... Never get anything if you don't ask for it. And homeboy got it. He faked it till he made it. So Cadillac's hopes of establishing an estate in the new world, however, were short-lived. Although he and his bride resided there for a time, they soon abandoned the enterprise. Cadillac later gained lasting recognition as the founder of Detroit. So <laughs> this, he just bopped around. He was given... How did he get so far? He was given all this land in Maine and was like, eh, this is, I don't know if I want this anymore. And then <laughs> he went to Detroit. He yeah. started Detroit. Okay. <laughs> all right. I yeah. mean, some people are just never satisfied. They really aren't. So I didn't, I didn't want to veer too off course, but I'm probably going to Google this later and figure out like, what this dude's deal was so we encourage you to do the same but moving on in 1759 after a century and a half of conflict the british ended french dominion in acadia then came the revolutionary war which ended british's plans for mount desert island and by 1820 farming and lumbering became the major industries in the area the population started to grow and more individuals were developing land so now we're in the very early 1900s, and there were two main dudes. First guy was George Dorr. Second guy was Charles W. Elliott. So the two of them, along with others, 
established the Hancock County Trustees of Public Preservation in September of 1901. And this was for the purpose of, quote, acquiring, owning, and holding lands and other property in Hancock County for free public use. Okay. So, National Park theme. Right. They're keeping they up had, with it. Yeah, they had it yeah. ahead of time. So, donations were slow at first, but then grew over time. And then by 1913, the corporation had acquired 6,000 acres across Mount Desert Island. Dora believed the only way to truly protect these lands was for it to attain national park status. Mm -hmm. And remember, because we know that you all listened to our first two episodes, (laughs) by 1913, the um, National Park Service had not been established officially, but there were such things as national monuments. Dora presented 5,000 acres of land to the federal government, and in 1916, President Wilson announced the creation of Sir de Mont's National Monument. Then more property was acquired, and Dora continued efforts to obtain full national park status for the monument, and then in 1919, President Woodrow Wilson signed the act establishing Lafayette National Park, which was, at the time, the first national park east of the Mississippi River. Oui, oui, mon ami, je m'appelle Lafayette, mm, mm, mm. the Lancelot of the Revolutionary Set. Yes. <laughs> uh, do you want to shout out what that is for, in case people don't know? No. Okay. If you don't know, now you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> She's not throwing you a bone. Um, and then, actually, fun fact, Dor became the first park superintendent. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. D-O-O-R. D-O-R-R. D-O-R, okay. Yes. Uh, so, Lafayette National Park was named after Marquis de Lafayette, who was an influential French participant in the American Revolution. But the name of the park was changed to Acadia National Park in January of 1929 in honor of the former French colony of Acadia, which once included Maine. And then Shkudik Peninsula was added to the park in 1929, growing it by several thousand acres. Okay. Yeah. I'm mad that they took it away from Lafayette. Yeah, I know. It's like, I mean, I'm glad he wasn't alive for that to happen. Otherwise, that would have been a slap in the face. Such an insult. Um, so it still sucks, but also it's like, I guess it didn't really make a difference to him. But from 1915 to 1940, a wealthy philanthropist by the name of John D. Rockefeller. Ooh, ooh. We know him. Financed design and directed the construction of a network of carriage roads throughout the park, which played a very vital role in making the park accessible to visitors. Um, And that's all I have on strictly the colonization history and how it came to be a national park. So I guess I shouldn't just call that colonization history. I guess I should have split that up into two. But I did want to talk about the fire of 1947. Okay, backing up just one moment. Mm-hmm. What I was going to say earlier when in our introduction is that I feel like because of the carriage roads and the infrastructure that exists that seems a little bit more modern, that might be why it's a little bit more low-key because it doesn't necessarily oh. feel as national parky as some of the national parks that are okay. just more like wildlife landscape. Sure. Maybe. That's a good thought. Yeah. Like things built from wood and petrified wood and yeah. more wood. Uh-huh. Dirt, mud. Right. There were there are like a number of like stone bridges throughout the park. And a lighthouse. That may, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. <laughs> so I feel like maybe people don't just don't consider Acadia a national park 
category in their head. They just consider it like this pretty little place with the history of the Rockefellers mm-hmm. and the carriage houses, and I mean, it's it, just so beautiful. It is very New Englandy and Maine. No kidding. Yeah, the history itself is as well. It is. Um, yeah, but I nonetheless, it's still gorgeous. Yes, and undeniably, I'm stoked perfect. to go one day. Yes. I'm really pumped. In spring or summer, I'll add. Mm-hmm. I love me a national park. I ain't going there in winter. No. Veto that idea. I, I don't. I don't want to dip a toe <laughs> past Maryland. Yeah. After like October, I'm right there with you. Neither do I. Uh, so I do want to tell the story of the fire of 1947. I have no idea Real about quick. this, so do tell. So this was actually a 29-day-long fire in Maine Oof. that consumed 10,000 acres of Acadia National Park. <laughs> it burned 67 of the historic summer cottages along, this is like the term, Millionaire's Row. I was about to say, they were not, they were called cottages, but they were they mansions. They were not cottages, yes. yeah. So um, this was a, a street in Bar Harbor that uh, was, it was called Millionaire's Row because it's just where a lot of very, very wealthy people summered. Um, Appropriately. Because, named. yeah, the summers are, are cool up there. But it burned 67 of those homes along with 170 other homes and five hotels. Oh, my goodness. They were all destroyed. But restoration of the park was supported by the Rockefeller family. Regrowth has occurred naturally with new forests consisting of birch and aspen, enhancing the colors of the autumn foliage, and it also added diversity to the tree populations, providing for the eventual regeneration of spruce and fir forests. 1947 was a very dry year, so this wasn't started by man um so it was a natural occurrence obviously really sad that all those acres were destroyed and all those homes burned down but it was lightning i'm i'm assuming it must have so. been, yeah, yeah. It must have been lightning but uh also shout out to the rockefeller family like if you're a billionaire which i'm i can imagine we have like quite a number of billionaire listeners mm-hmm. Uh, do something good with your money. And I'm not just talking about, and like maybe I'm sure there are people who are going to listen to this and be like, Nick and Kat, don't tell people what to do with their money. But quit listening right now. Yeah. Like if (laughs) if like you, I'm telling you, you cannot comprehend a billion dollars. I can have a whole other episode on this topic alone. So anyway, if you have more than a billion dollars, you need to do some good stuff with it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Even like um, a hundredth of it. Right. A hundredth. Even a hundredth of it. And I'm not just saying like give it away. Don't, I'm not saying like go on the streets and just like pass out thousand dollar bills to people. I'm saying like, I don't know, create a national park or preserve something or I mean, sky's the limit really. But children. Yeah. Books. Do, some, do something phenomenal. And I'm going to stop before I get all sweaty and flustered. (laughs) So thank you to Rockefeller for doing this. Um, I wish more people would be like you. Yes, we appreciate your philanthropy. and Very, very much. Help to maintain the beauty of America's best idea, the national parks. Mm -hmm. Um, Cool. Well, that's all I had on the history. And I am pumped, Kat, to hear what you have to say 
about the wildlife in the park. Did you do that in that order to tee me up to talk about, like, how burning can actually catalyze biodiversity and things of that nature? I didn't. Not intentionally. I wanted to point that out because I think it's just important to to note that um, that regrowth was possible and not to like just end on this really sad note of like and then in 1947 all these houses burned down the end (laughs) Um, and add that sometimes uh this is a a a very natural occurrence um and that it good can come of it yes actually fire is critical to the reproduction of some trees and it can, you know, the, the burning of underbrush and things like that can really allow for new ecosystems, for more diversity. And diversity means a healthier place for all of the animals to live. So actually prescribed burns happen a lot, especially in our area. Yeah. Um, and I think that with what we've seen this year in Australia and California and all over the West Coast, you might see prescribed burns being used more often. But yeah, it's it's not always bad. It, it is bad when people's homes burn, so we're sorry for that. But um, yeah, I didn't even know that it had happened, but that kind of explains what I'm going to go into next. And I feel like every single episode I started out with like, Acadia is the home to a ton of species of animals, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're not wrong, say it. <laughs> so that that is the truth. Its shoreline harbors marine waters rich in nutrients and vital organisms that support the biodiversity from the bottom of the food chain all the way up to the 1,500 pound moose that live there. Nice. The changing tide creates unique habitats for sea creatures such as sea cucumbers, sea stars, sea urchins, and the blue mussel. (laughs) (laughs) The park includes a variety of ecosystems including, and you said this earlier, but I'm going to add a few, wetlands, marshes, swamps, evergreen forests, mountains, coasts, shorelines, intertidal and subtidal zones, lakes, and ponds. The park is home to around 40 species of mammals, more than 330 species of birds, 30 species of fish, 7 reptiles, and 11 amphibians. There are also a known an unknown number of invertebrate species bugs in the air, on the ground, and in the intertidal zones. <laughs> so lots of animals up in her. Mm-hmm. The National Park Service does have a species list that you can check out for more detailed information. And they say about each taxa, which I hate that word. It's like it gives me PTSD from <laughs> undergrad, but of wildlife. So, um, yeah, there's lots of wildlife here. There's lots of different um, kinds of geography to look at and things of that nature. So let's let's dive on in. Let's do it. Y'all. So I've done this with two other groups today. Now I'm going to do it with you. I'm going to describe this first critter to you piece by piece. And we're going to see how many features it takes for you to guess what I'm talking about. So it's like 20 questions. Yes. Okay. One, they have webbed feet. So wait, what am I? Do you want me to like throw out an animal to see if I'm right? Yeah. Okay. Um, Duck. (laughs) Hold on. What else were you going to throw out besides an animal? Like me? Like cat has a web feet. Well, I was going to say like a type of bird. But oh, I don't know if you want like oh, a specific. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I'm going to say you have to be specific. You want like an animal. Okay. So my first <laughs> guess is a duck. Um, no. And this is already a double hint because you now know they live part of their life in water. Okay. So two, they have transparent eyelids for seeing underwater. 
A frog. No. They weigh 25 to 70 pounds. What? 25 to 70 pounds? Half of its life underwater. I, you might think I'm dumb, but like, I cannot even think of an animal like that. Um, Four. They can hold their breath underwater for up to 15 minutes. Um... I'm, I don't know. I really have no idea. Five. They have long, brown, waterproof fur. A seal. Six. Wait. A seal does have fur only when they're a baby. Oh, gosh. I feel so stupid right <laughs> now. Don't feel stupid. This is no like no one's really got it. Okay. Um, <laughs> six is going to help you out a lot. Okay. They have a 14-inch long tail. A platypus? <laughs> no. Okay. The last one, seven. <laughs> oh, no. They have long teeth used for chopping down trees and plants. A beaver. Yes. <laughs> I was so nervous for myself that I wasn't going to get it. And I this probably would have been my last episode. Can you believe? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. People love it when we get the giggles. Okay. Um, um, what so a good th- game. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so beavers have incisors, their front teeth, that continue to grow um, their entire life. So chewing on wood actually keeps them from get, the teeth getting too long, and it the chewing process files them down. Um, they actually are herbivores, and they only eat wood and vegetation. So, yeah. So 70 they, pounds they of herbivore. They straight up eat the wood. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I and they know. they just like like chewed it away i didn't know they actually consumed it yeah and they know like what wood is like sweeter i think like the younger wood is better or something of that nature i I did not go far into that so then after i looked all this up i had that woodchuck thing stuck in my head yeah of course the tongue twister so i had to look that up and beavers and woodchucks are not the same thing Mm. woodchucks are actually like groundhogs just fly okay okay so I chose to focus on the North American beaver because it is actually a keystone species, which I'm going to describe what a keystone species is in just a moment. They also make a huge impact on the environment, possibly creating some of the biggest alterations of any creature on Earth. Like they are an alteration to the ecosystem. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, some refer to them as ecosystem engineers, and we should change the phrase to busy as a beaver. Because they're always just dizzy. Love it. Making things happen. As you probably know, beavers are famous for building dams. They chop down trees with their long, sharp teeth to slow down water. And then that ends up flooding a lot of areas that become wetlands or ponds. And these wetlands and ponds provide food and shelter for the beaver and other animals. Mm -hmm. Um, But what you probably didn't know is they also carry mud and stones around to make the dams with their little hands. Oh. I know. So they would like carry mud to the dam and like oh that's so cute no, i had no idea yeah their homes are appropriately named in the english language as a lodge my only real like experience or uh, is experience the right word with beavers is as a kid i loved the movie lion the witch in the wardrobe the Narnia movie. Okay. And the beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver played a pretty vital role Yeah. Um, in the plot to that movie. But, and everyone knows what a beaver is, but like now that I'm also thinking about it, like I don't, this is really interesting to me because like I don't know much about beavers. Yeah. I, one of the groups that I did that little uh, exercise with, 
someone told me that they actually, their um, tails are kind of like our fingerprints. So they pass down genetic coding information on their tail. Whoa. I know. They're so cool. That's really cool. So circling back to the Keystone, Keystone species deal, I thought that the National Park Service website put this best. So I'm going to quote them here. The North American beaver is a keystone species, a unique organism that supports the entire biological community. The term keystone refers to a wedge-shaped block that forms the apex of a stone arch, the brick that holds the entire span in place. If you remember the keystone and the arch collapse, <laughs> if you remove it, <laughs> the keystone and the arch collapses. So they are critical to the wow. entire ecosystem. So... Um, because they build these wetlands and lakes and slow down water, beavers create hospitable habitats for all creatures. And the water collection and preservation is critical for survival. So basically, we can all thank the eager beaver for their frowny teeth and construction skills. Thanks, you guys. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. Um, on to the next one. This is one of those invertebrates that we kind of spoke about in the introduction. So... Fireflies, or as we call them in the South, lightning Lightning bugs. bugs. (laughs) Of course. Fireflies or lightning bugs are beetles that have a chemical in their stomach. When that chemical reacts with oxygen, it creates a spark that is visible. There are over 2,000 species of fireflies, and each species has its own individual pattern of lighting up, kind of like a lighthouse. This helps the firefly know if it's encountering one of its own kind or a different species, you know, for mating and whatnot. (laughs) You can see these whimsical flying beetles each summer, especially when it's warm and humid, or muggy, as we say here in the South. That is so cool. Yeah. I wish you all could see my face as I was listening to Cat Talk because (laughs) similar to beavers, like everyone knows what a beaver is. You might see a beaver or like in a creek nearby your house, you might see like how the wood has like gotten that hourglass shape because of the beaver being there. Like you see lightning bugs whenever you are little and growing up, but like you don't think about like, wait, how are they actually glowing? And like, what's the purpose of that? That is so cool yeah i agree i think that um well well it actually is a little bit detrimental to them which we'll find out later but yeah i always thought it was just like bioluminescence like yeah yeah or just like just that's just what they do like a frog rivets (laughs) and a lightning bug glows like you just think but no i was a haunted firefly one year for halloween i'm just throwing that out there okay (laughs) i just remembered that How, how are you haunted well, I was like a firefly in a play, and then my mom didn't want to get me another costume, so she just put like that um, spider web stuff on me, like yeah. you put out in other people's yards. But why but couldn't you have out. just been a firefly? I don't know. Yeah, it was like firefly. <laughs> mom was like that not was letting go laugh. of like the whole yeah like Halloween theme of it. You can just be a firefly. You had to be a scary one. I can't imagine that my mother was trying to make it any harder on herself. But anyway, okay, so if you're a bird, you know that fireflies taste awful. Basically, they're not good at all for eating. Mm. If you're a bird, what you don't know is that not all fireflies taste awful, but some use mimicry as a defense mechanism. So they look similar enough to the species that taste awful that they will not be considered for the dinner plate. It's kind of like when you pass up a chocolate chip cookie because you think it could be raisin. 
Yeah, I have made that mistake before, and I've <laughs> hated the rest of the day. So over the years, park rangers and visitors have reported an obvious decrease in the f- firefly population. The decline in these whimsical spottings has cause for concern. Not surprisingly, and maybe fortunately, humans are the main cause for the reduction in the population. Light pollution from cars, streetlights, homes, mm. etc. confuse the firefly, and they don't flash as often. And because the firefly needs to see flashes to find another mate, this oh, is an issue. Yeah. Also, pesticides in the development of open spaces has killed the firefly population and pushed them out of their homes. Chemical companies have also found an interest in fireflies. They have been collecting them to research the very thing that makes them special, their flashes. So they were buying them for a penny each. Yeah. So their bioluminescent chemicals were extracted and used for a wide range of scientific research. Everything from cancer research to detecting life on Mars to repelling sharks, according to a Chicago Tribune article from 1987. Wow. So, we can all be a part of the comeback story of the firefly. Tell us how. (laughs) By researching how to reduce our own light pollution and encouraging cities to do the same. According to the National Park Service, night skies play an important role in animal survival. 30% of vertebrates, 60% of invertebrates are nocturnal (laughs) and require dark skies to hunt, mate, or migrate. As cities grow around the globe, light pollution limits wildlife's access to see dark skies and they need survival that they need for survival. By protecting our night skies, Acadia not only maintains an outstanding view of the stars, but also preserves the cyclical rhythm of night and day that animals have depended on since the beginning of life on Earth. Cyclical, that's a funny word. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently. Um, No, that's great. Thanks for that tidbit about how we can be part of the comeback of The Lightning Bug. Yeah, I had a feeling it had to do with um, pesticides, but I didn't really think about light pollution with no, that I one. I wouldn't have thought that either. So, um, downlighting. Research it. Research All right. It. So, I've saved the most popular animal for last. The puffin. It's a bird. It's a cute little bird. Ironically, you can't see these cuties in the park. <laughs> you actually have to take a boat to see them. But that's, like, one of the number one questions. When people get to the Acadia National Park, they always ask, where do I see the puffins? They're not there. They're a little (laughs) bit further away. But I did want to highlight them because they're very close. The small photogenic bird have a black back and head, a white belly, orange legs and feet, a white face, and a stout but powerful beak outlined in orange. Their white face and black eyes give them a look of a clown with wings. They're very cute. They're so cute. Yeah, if you don't know, if you can't picture a puffin while we're talking about it, uh, go Google it. They're like, they're they're pretty unlike any other animal. They're very cute, though. Even their name is cute. It is. You puffin. Oh, it's such it sounds a cute like name. something that you call your significant other. <laughs> <laughs> so this is um, another reason why I brought this up, other than you can find them near the park. Similarly to the lightning bug, the puffin was just found out to be able to glow. Whoa. In a National Geographic article in 2018, they described how the University of Nottingham put a puffin under a black light and its beak had bright glowing stripes. That's awesome. This is because of biofluorescence, which reflects the blue light hitting the surface and re-emits it as a different color the most common being green, red, or orange. 
This is different than bioluminescence, in which animals either produce their own light Mm -hmm. through a series of chemicals or host organisms that give off light. So um, the fact that so many marine animals and puffins live a half marine life, um, biofluorescence tells us that organisms use light in ways that we don't even get to see, which is super cool. That's super cool. So back to the park. <laughs> the only place that the Atlantic puffin makes nest and lays eggs in the United States is Maine. So you can take a boat um, to go see the puffins, and um, you may see some whales along the way or some seals. There's so much good, so much good spotting of wildlife out there. So the best months to see the puffins are from June to July. But the excursions to the islands happen from May to August. Um, early in the day, the birds can be seen between the nest and the water bringing food to their young, while late-day activity is more relaxing with loafing on the rocks or rafting together on the surface of the water. So cute. The sweetest. A cute life for a cute, cute animal. Seriously. So I did I did do a um a plant as well. Um it's not the most exciting plant, but it is important. Let's hear it. The diversity of Acadia National Park is reflected in its plant life. More than a thousand plant species are found there. A variety of plant communities exists throughout the park, from wetlands to coastline to deep within the hardwood or evergreen forest. The liverwort <laughs> may have an unattractive name it is an interesting plant represented by an estimated 7500 to 9000 species they're they're basically they're in the moss realm it is small primitive non-vascular non-flowering land plants they basically look like moss okay but it's called the liver wart liver gross we'll talk about it okay so the liver wart acquired its unlovely name quite honestly the old English word wart means small plant. Oh. And the individuals of some phalloid liverworts are liver-shaped. Thus, the name liverwort can be constru- construed to mean liver-like small plant. Herbalists in days of the old believed that liverwort concoctions could be used to treat liver diseases. This actually happened a lot back Whoa. in the day. okay. So, like, ironically, some of the things work. So, like, a walnut looks like a brain. It actually helps your brain. Yeah. Yeah, so... I've seen those on Instagram. And a kidney bean looks like a kidney. Does it help your kidney or does it just look like it? I'm not But it's sure. not an uncommon theme yeah. for things to be named literally after what they look like. Exactly. For a part of your body. Yeah, but it is weird that they help that part of your body. Yeah. When that happens. Yeah. So, since some people... Some people still believe that that liverwort extracts are included in some modern herbal remedies. Because they have been thought, however erroneously, to act on the liver, the liverworts are collectively referred to as hepatics, a term whose meaning includes acting on or treating diseases of the liver. To further confuse the issue, hepatics, or unrelated flowering plants of the buttercup family, is frequently called liverwort. Anyway, they're... They're not doing great. We should all care about them. Oh. This is, yeah. I was looking through the plants and it was like ferns, grasses, mosses, and liverworts. And I was like, well, I guess there's one that people don't know about. <laughs> I didn't know about liverworts. Now, now you know. The liverwort's not going to help your liver. More than likely, it may. If y'all know something about this, email us. But the name came from that. So, lucky us. Anyway, Nicholas, I think we have some fun facts. 
We do. Um, but actually, I was Googling... Um, if your kidney bean helps your kidney? Yeah. And I was, <laughs> I was Googling some of these uh, foods that look like body parts that they help. And without, like, being able to show these. So they do exist. Some of them, I admit, are a stretch. Um, but, like, worth looking into, I guess. Yeah. But the example you gave of a walnut and looking like a brain, that one made the most sense. I'm also seeing that a mushroom turned on its side kind of looks like an ear. And apparently those are good for your ears. So that's pretty cool. Um, but... Like I said, some of them are a stretch, but... You should look up the one for carrot. Oh, with the eye? Well, I mean... Like your iris? Don't read it out loud. Oh. Anyway, maybe look that up, but it's, you know, an interesting little connection that people have come up with. But yes, Kat, you are right. We do have some fun facts. Hopefully these will be more fun than... um, the liverwort. Sorry, I didn't know how to say that without being like rude. It is gross, but. and I don't like. I couldn't even. Anyway, why don't we go back and forth? One, oh, two. I remember what I was going to say about the liverwort. So I know that all things biology in these episodes are left up to you, Cat. But the liverwort existing and being prominent in Acadia National Park kind of makes sense because what I found when doing a lot of this research was that Acadia is actually 20% wetland. Mm-hmm. So to have such a moss-like plant throughout the park makes sense. Probably thanks to all the beavers. Thanks to those beavers. Those keystone species. I have a newfound major respect for the beavers and for lightning bugs. That's so cool. Okay, so my first fun fact is the Thunder Hole, which is such a funny name. I cannot get over it. Oh, but the Thunder Hole is a place in Acadia National Park. It's a small inlet naturally carved out of the rocks where the waves roll into. At the end of this inlet down low is a small cavern where when the rush of waves arrives, air and water is forced out like a clap of distant thunder. Water may spout as high as 40 feet with a thunderous roar, hence the name Thunder Hole. Did you listen to the recordings that you, like on YouTube of this? I didn't listen to the recordings, but I like did see some YouTube videos of people like just visiting. Yeah, it's. I mean, it sounds like thunder. It's I mean, crazy. it's it's very appropriately named. <laughs> yeah. Okay, my fun fact. Located at the southernmost tip of Mount Desir Island, <laughs> Bass Harbor Head was automated in 1974, and its light can be seen 13 miles out to sea. That's a bright light. Yeah, and that um, so Bass Harbor Head is a lighthouse. Yes, in it's Acadia. the only lighthouse in Acadia. Right, and um, that's the name of it. I just want to throw it out there that all lighthouses, their their beacon has a certain speed to it, and they're all different. So people at sea could know which one they were coming oh, up on, smart. just like the Firefly. I don't spend any time at sea, so I wouldn't ever need to know that. They even do it today. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. That's really neat. Uh, my next one is that much of the carriage paths created by Rockefeller prohibit vehicle travel today and are reserved for bicyclists, pedestrian, and equestrian travel. Excellent. One of the park's peaks, Cadillac Mountain, is the highest mountain on the East Coast. At 1,530 feet, it offers incredible views from its pink granite summit. If you want to find a higher peak on the Atlantic coast, you'll have to trek all the way down to Rio de Janeiro. So 
whenever we say a peak on the East Coast, we mean literally like a peak that you can see the Atlantic Ocean from. Okay. Yeah, so we're not talking about like mountains like on the east side of the continent, but like literally coastline. Coastline. Gotcha. Yeah, so that's like pretty um like pretty cool that there's such like a high peak that you can like see the ocean mm-hmm. from. That's really neat. For half the year, roughly from the second week in October through the first week of March, Cadillac's height and coastal perch make it the first place in the easternmost state where the sun appears. So it's the first place in the United States to see the sunrise during that time of year. Excellent. Yes. That it is written poorly. I wonder who did that. Um, it was know. the first national park east of the Mississippi. Did we already say that? We did not say that, did we? Yeah. You did? No, not like in this list, but it was mentioned. Before. In the history, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's fine. Do you want to do the last one? No, you got this. It's your favorite. Oh, okay. Thanks for letting me take mm-hmm. this one, Cap. So, Acadia is one of the few national parks that actually permits dogs, but man's best friend must be kept on a leash. We will likely do a separate episode on dog-friendly parks when it says Acadia is one of the few national parks that permits dogs. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head which others do, but we will do that research for you and let you know in a future episode. Mm-hmm. But obviously, in a, the back of my mind, whenever I'm planning my travels to these national parks, I'm like, which ones can I take Cooper to? That makes <laughs> me excited. So, Kat, thanks for doing this with me today. Do you have any questions Thoughts, comments, philosophies, intuitions, or ambiguities. Everyone should check out their local website and learn what they can and cannot recycle and then do it. Doing the right thing sometimes takes some time and it takes some research. So invest the time and the research, learn about recycling in your community, and act on it. Yeah, you only have to learn it once, I promise. Right. I love that thought, Cap. That's phenomenal. Um, Well, thanks for listening to our episode on Acadia National Park. You can find this and more episodes anywhere you find your podcasts. That's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and many more. Follow us on Instagram at Podcast. Email us at madeforyoumeadpodcast at gmail.com. Like and subscribe and tune in next week for another episode. Thanks so much. You're beautiful. Bye.